You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to SOGCAST number 11. My name is John Stryker Meyer. Welcome to our show today. And we're talking, uh, where this presentation is coming to you courtesy of Jocko Productions and Saw Chronicles. And I'm going to turn to... Uh, Across the Fence is one of our more uh, surreal stories of my entire 19 months in Vietnam. And it starts during a, a recon, a six-man recon team is in Laos and they're under enemy attack. And during the next NVA wave attack, Boggs, Pete Boggs was the team leader, he called in an airstrike. He told the A-1 Sky Raiders, to hit his recon team, which was codenamed ST Louisiana, to break the charge. The first 20 Mike Mike gun run ripped into the NVA and through ST Louisiana's perimeter. Tom Cunningham, the radio operator, was in a world of shit, and there was nothing he could do about it. The next thing he knew, he was 100 yards away, watching himself get hit twice. One round went through his right leg. One went through the radio on his back. Although the radio was destroyed, it saved Cunningham's life. Boggs got hit with shrapnel from the exploding PRC-25. The Vietnamese team member who was sitting where Walton had been was killed instantly. The rounds detonated the frag the smoke grenade, and the CS tear gas grenades on the dead indigenous soldier. More shrapnel knocked Boggs into semi-unconsciousness. The gun run broke the NVA wave attacks against ST Louisiana. It also left the team in a plume of tear gas and smoke from smoke grenades weapons fire, and the earlier napalm run. The NVA probably felt the conditions around the team perimeter were far more deadly than facing the gun runs from the spads. Walton performed a quick triage on Boggs and Cunningham. He found that while the explosion of the 20 Mike Mike round had been left behind, only a piece of single flesh or sinew holding the leg together it had seared a good section portion of Cunningham's wounded right leg, actually helping the situation by keeping the loss of blood to a minimum. The medic pulled out a green cravat for a tourniquet. He used his knife 
to twist the bandage tight above the stump to stem any further bleeding. Walton also treated Cunningham for severe throat burn from the CS gas. So this is from chapter four in Across the Fence, and we're going to get into much more detail about that day. And in the past couple of episodes of SOGCAST, we've had men that served in SOG for over three years. Today, we're honored to have with us Tom Cunningham, who served actually three days. A short period of time. And welcome, sir. Thank you. And uh, it is uh, one of the most unusual stories during my entire time, uh, my 19 months in the Secret War. And so Tom and I, since uh, August the 3rd, 1968, we met then, probably at the hospital after you came back. Correct. And then from there, we've moved forward ever since. But this attack, um, the unusual aspect of it was your personal experience. And then when I put the book together, I'll never forget interviewing you. You're up in New Hampshire. I'm in California. It's like 4 o'clock in the morning because you're an early riser in New Hampshire. And we're talking about this, and you told me for the first time about your out-of-body experience. And uh, I like to go back to a little bit more of the book, then you can fill us in on more of the details, because this is still one of the most unusual stories. <laughs> so you are, again, the team had been attacked, several wave attacks, a six-man recon team in Laos. You'd only been on the ground maybe an hour or so Correct. when they yes. came at you. Yes. And so... After several wave attacks, the team leader, Boggs, called that airstrike on his own team to break the enemy attack, which in and of itself is an unusual occasion, but the team leader made that decision based on the exigent circumstances. And when we left, Tom's body was literally lifted off the ground. And when that happened, he had an out-of-body experience. And returning to the book just for a second, Cunningham was still watching himself from far away. He heard someone on a radio calling Covey, saying there were two dead. He thought he'd better find out whether or not he was alive. The Green Beret had a unique test to find out. He yelled. It sounded like it was far, far away. But he knew that he was alive. The yell also ended Cunningham's out-of-body experience. He returned to his body, lying on the ground, and Cunningham knew they had to help himself. The more he did, the better it would be for everyone. My God, Tom. <laughs> and what was, I mean, what was that moment like flying through the air without the greatest of ease? And you're watching yourself. I mean, we've heard about out-of-body experiences. But well, this. Just prior to being hit, I felt this, how you get that sixth sense of you're in trouble. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, and something's going wrong. So I tried to find the source of danger. And I twisted a little bit. I couldn't find anything. And the next thing I know, I... If you can imagine yourself being a Chinese gong and having somebody come up <laughs> and strike that gong, that was Not me. once, but twice. Yes. So I felt this big vibration go through my body. And at that point, the essence of me, whoever I am, 
left my physical body. I could actually be an observer of what was happening to me as I flew through this cloud of smoke and uh, flew through the air, landed on the ground. But even as you're flying, you could tell that your leg had been severed, but it was hanging on by a sinew. Yes. Yeah. You could see the leg separate. Uh, and and uh, that itself is a shocking experience, uh, to say the least. Uh, but that essence of being connected to your body maybe by a thread, but you're out of the body and you're not really experiencing uh, part of you experiencing what's going on and the other part is not. It's watching what is going on. Uh, and that's when I uh, landed uh, outside our, our perimeter. Uh, I had no idea whether I was alive or not. I really did not. When yeah, I heard, You're just still watching yourself. You're not yeah, sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I'm not seeing this, you know, the great white lights and all this. Other, no, I just watching the field around me develop. Um, and that's when I heard uh, the Kamo up to Covey. And I'm sitting there going, I know I'm hurt, okay? I know I've lost my leg. I don't know whether I'm alive or not. And I'm hearing this, well, there's two other, or at least two dead. Yeah. And at that point, we had already suffered one indige casualty. Yeah. So I know we were down to, you know, three active people maybe, uh, or not. <laughs> and that's when I decided that I would test. If I figured if I could hear myself yell, then I had to be alive. Oh, my God. I, I have no idea where that came from, but if I could hear right. myself yell, uh, then I must be alive. Still with us. <laughs> so I yelled. And as uh, your book mentions, it was like somebody at the far end of a football field yelling. Yeah. Oh, my God. But the minute I heard my voice, yeah, it snapped me like a rubber band, snapped me right back into my body. And so I've kept this just for this moment in time, just in case anybody has a doubt. This is a 20 millimeter round. Check its size and shape. Two of which hit you August the 3rd, 1968 on top of a knoll yep. in Laos. And he's around to talk about it today. That in and of itself is just remarkable. And uh, so <laughs> you you come back, you are alive. And at some point, John came out to you yeah, from that point on, I will go, I'm in and out of consciousness, or there is, I have clear memories of some things, and yeah. I have a vague memory of others, and other gaps have been filled by other people telling me what went on. Uh, but yes, I got dragged back into the inside of the perimeter. Uh, John put on the tourniquet, and then because of the surges of enemy forces against us, everybody had to do their job. Yeah. And I knew that, that at that point, my job was to not be a burden on anybody else, that I had to take care of myself as much as possible until we got out, assuming we could get out. Yeah. At that point, getting out was very questionable. It was. <laughs> so uh, let me just back the tape up a little bit. Uh, this is August the 3rd, 1968. By this time, the secret war had been going on for four years. And... Um, the secret war involved missions going across the fence into Laos and Cambodia to see what enemy f soldiers were up to. And so this was one of those missions. 
and it was ST Louisiana. And at that time in 68, there were six different uh, FOBs, Ford Operating Bases in Vietnam, from which the Green Berets ran missions across the fence into Cambodia, Laos, or North Vietnam. So this day, that mission was to go into that target area, which was on the Ashaw Valley, the west side of the Ashaw Valley, I believe. Correct. And um, the mission was to go in to find, do you remember what the mission itself was? Well, I knew part of the mission was uh, there was a uh, arc light scheduled two days after we were scheduled to come out. And part of our mission was to determine whether it was still a viable target area. Oh, is that right? Yes. I missed that part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for, it was for our listeners an arc light is a b-52 bombing raid indeed yes <laughs> and uh so the other aspect of this story is as i in the opening we said others have been in for three years in your case we know of at least three days when did you officially arrive at fubai because this was august the third i believe was a saturday i'm not sure yeah. I'd been in Nam. Uh, I got to Nam early July, uh, July one, July two, right in around that area, uh, and processed through. Uh, I'm not. I don't even know how long I was at yeah. Dubai. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a week, uh, plus or minus. What I know is when I got assigned to Fubai and got assigned to uh, Louisiana, uh, the team had already been signed this target site. Uh, and I was, the plan had been initial, well, what I was told, don't worry about it, you're too new, you won't be going out. Right. So it's just going to be uh, Boggs and Tony Harrell. We're going to go out with the Indige. And then Tony transferred to the Commo Shack while I was just trying to orient myself to being Indeed. in Fubai. Uh, so I got elevated to the 1-1 position, and this mission was still going to go. And thank God somebody woke up and said, we can't put an FNG in. Yeah, as a, a fucking one. new guy. Yeah, <laughs> as the one. One, thank you very much. You're good enough to carry a radio, but not. <laughs> yeah. We need a little bit more experience on that. And that's when they uh, pulled in John Walton to be the one one on the team. So we went in, uh, I was told we went in heavy, three Americans and three Indige. Indeed. Uh, as we were pro ready to go, it was going to be, Boggs had planned to do a last light insert. Right. So we took two slides because we couldn't get in at last light because of the weather uh, in the Ashaw. Did you actually launch? No, and then the we, weather never, we never got the, off the launch light. Right, okay, yeah. The uh, weather closed us out twice. And so they decided, well, we'll try a first light insert and avoid, <laughs> and avoid the weather. Uh, that worked. Yes. The, the good news is it worked. The yeah, bad news is it, it worked. worked. <laughs> it worked very well. Uh, but we went in uh, on UH-34s, two of us per UH-34. And even that, I mean, I was surprised that they had three three Kingbees. The code name for the Vietnamese CH-34s, which were the old Sikorsky uh, helicopters, were Kingbees. Yep. And they're flown by the 219th Special Operations Squadron of the South Vietnamese Air Force that were just uh, amazing pilots. And we'll get into more details about Captain Tin a little later down the, down the road here. But uh, 
And then also... Very skilled uh, aviators. Oh, and fearless. Yep. Um, and then uh, you had also um, met John Walton back when you were going through training group at one phase? Yes. So at uh, least you knew each other a little bit. <laughs> we had casually... Uh, he was friends with uh, a couple of people in my squad room, uh, for lack of... I don't know what we called the Bay Areas, but call yeah, it a yeah, squad yeah. room, uh, who were ahead of me in uh, training group. So I knew him by sight. I knew him t- by name. Right. Uh, so when we re-met up at Fubai, uh, we at least knew each other to say, hi, <laughs> <laughs> I remember you. Yeah. Uh, so we weren't total strangers at that particular point. Well, and also, <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't know how when you come in the country, sometimes, even if you're special forces, you can get diverted elsewhere. Oh, yes. And even with so... When you landed at Cameron Bay, you learned there were orders that were going to ship you to a conventional unit. And how'd you get out of that? Uh, we found the uh, SFNCO Lesion and said, help. <laughs> I hadn't wanted to go through all of training group and everything to get to Nam. Right. Uh, and then get diverted to a conventional unit. So I wanted to get back into an SF unit. And the options were... I won't say great. They were, how would you like to go to SOG? Not knowing what it is, thank you right. very much. And you, you know, conventional unit or SOG. And I said, well, I'll do SOG. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and so for there, that's when you go back to Natrang, have your in-country training. Yes. And you said that, is that what they called the, was that called the Recondo School at the time? Cause I forgot what the name was. I know we did in-country training. I just forgot yeah, what at, it was. Yeah, uh, at Natrang, we, uh, the in-country orientation or training was uh, conducted at the MACV Recondo School. Oh, okay. Uh, and not necessarily in conjunction with other classes there, but in our own bubble. Right. Uh, and maybe a week long, uh, accumulating with a... Uh, small recon patrol out or patrol out onto uh, Entree Island. Um, Getting live fire during your drill no, like some no, teams did? No, we did not. We had a couple of heat exhaustion cases. That was the most serious <laughs> serious thing. Yeah, because that's July. Yes. That is summer. And you run into secondary jungle growth, and that's a real uh, difficult uh, barrier to get through. Welcome to Wait a Minute Vines? Yes. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, so uh, from there, um, did you go to Da Nang, yeah. get your top secret briefing yes. first? Yeah, I went to, from Nang Trang to Da Nang. Mm-hmm. Uh, stayed, I don't know why we stayed overnight at House 22. Right, uh, and, the uh, SF safe house in Da Nang. Yeah. Yeah. And then processed over to uh, the SF compound in Da Nang. So you remember your top secret briefing? Yes. I was quite impressed with the... Uh, Flow of the quick flow of information that you got. It was very pro- professionally presented, as a lot of military briefings are. Yeah, uh, and uh, you're not overwhelmed, but they're putting up the whole uh, organizational uh, chart, so to speak, of what SOG was and how it was organized. And that was after you signed a non-dis- non-disclosure uh, agreement. Yeah. Yes, and you've already, and they give you a little code book to. You know what's your code? What code name do you want? Thank oh, you very yeah. much. You got, we got to assign you one of these code names, uh, and you go through. Uh, at that point, they were you go also through a small interview where are you going to stay in Da Nang uh, and maybe uh, work Camo, uh, 
Because yeah, well, when you went through Special Forces training, that was your final MOS. No. Or you started, started with Kamo. And then weapons. And, yeah. And, uh, the, no, 12, 12B. Oh, really? You yeah. could blow things up? I could blow things up. Thank you very much. <laughs> I got blown up instead. Yes. Indeed. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, you put uh, it out there, sir. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, I found, uh, I had originally gone to training group for 05B Kamo. Right. And then I found that I was having a difficult time reaching the uh, send and receive standards at that point. It was, uh, you had to have 1818 right. capability, and I got to 1716. Right, and which means you had to serve, because with Morse code, they have five-letter groups, groups, and you had to receive and send 18 in one minute. Yes. WPM, words, word groups per minute. And that's why I got recycled. Me, McIntyre, Rick Astis, and a few of the others got, all got recycled because that was hard training. But Oh, it's 16, 17 receiving. Yeah. It sounds, to me, it started sounding like a solid line of sound. <laughs> Thank you very much. I could not tell a dit from a dat from a Indeed. space and time. Thank yes. you very much. <laughs> so off to engineering. And yep. then mm -hmm. uh, um, that, that must have been a lot of fun, though. Oh, I had to blow stuff up. I think engineering is... Uh, I've always been attracted to things that go bang. Indeed. Uh, so that was a natural substitute for Kamo. Right. Uh, <laughs> at, at that particular point. So, and then you get assigned to carry a radio on SOG. Right. So getting back to your briefing, what was that like? And then out of that, then how do you get your assignment to FOB1? Well, we went through, uh, like I said, we I can remember, a, you know, we, in processing, you're standing in line, you're going through, uh, there's a couple officers that are interviewing you. And I can remember the comment standing up, well, you know, if you had a little bit more experience, we have a slot for a demo man, but you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to Fubai. And oh, I, is that right? Yeah. And okay. Said, and I said, okay, you're going to uh, run recon in, in Fubai. Yeah. And I said, that was uh, no choice. And anyway, I didn't expect any choice. You're sitting there, here's my orders, you hand them your... Uh, your file, uh, and uh, they look at it very quickly and say, okay, if some of the Kamo guys I know stayed right in Da Nang. They were at the Kamo Shack in Da Nang before they went on any of the recon teams. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah so. Some of the guys were in the Kamo Shack for a long time well, before they got on a recon yeah. team. Indeed. But you avoided that. Yeah, right up Right to, on the recon team. In right fact, that's one of the quickest, you know, you come on a team, maybe we'll just say for today's discussion, on that Thursday, you're on a team. You get a briefing on Friday, and they try to do the night insurance, but you get weathered out. Maybe, maybe twice, two days in a row. Two days in a row. Okay, Thursday and Friday, you get weathered out, and then Saturday morning, it's showtime. Yep. Uh, first light, and uh, a key thing here because August the third, the mountain ranges in Laos were high, and you inserted on a knoll, and they planned to take three helicopters. They had the old uh, CH forty uh, 34s. Right. And so two Americans, one American. And indigenous. And indigenous. The first one would be Pete, his indigenous. The second helicopter, Which you were mean? on that one with another indigenous. And then Walton was on a third for the insertion. Right. And even there, I think you said you heard a couple of rounds that were fired at the helicopter? No, I, I did not. Okay. Uh, I thought we got in pretty cleanly. Okay. Um, you know, they. They were sab they sandwiched me between Pete and John for a reason. Okay, <laughs> experience, experience, <clears throat> no guy right with the experience. Uh, but we uh, got off the um, 
landing zone, uh, hit the tree line, went into the tree line and uh, lay quiet for several minutes, quite a, quite a bit of time. In fact, when we released the uh, choppers, because after you're on the ground, after insert, you wait about 10 minutes, yeah. hear how it's going on, and then you give a team okay. Yeah. And you, the radio guy, you did it. Yeah, and Pete wanted to wait longer than that. Just to be CYA. Yes. Sure. This was We had anticipated the target area to be extremely hot. Uh, we actually had anticipated not being able to get in, getting shot out of the LZ. Uh, that uh, anticipation didn't happen, but Pete held the uh, covey over us. Uh, in the air assets on site for long enough that when we said Team OK, they said, what took you so long? We were worried about you. Oh, is that right? Yes. Oh, OK. Yeah. And uh, again, for for background purposes, Pete, by that point, had been a veteran recon. He had run missions out of Quezon with FOB3. And then when they closed FOB3, Pete came down to Fubai at FOB1. And then he became the team leader. And then we had that change of membership on the team. You came on, and John, I think he, by that point, John had run one or two missions with another team. So he had some experience mm-hmm. on the ground. But more importantly, he was a damn good medic. Yes. <laughs> and needed. Oh, yeah. And so um, when you're on the ground, you get in, you get the team okay, and then... We start moving uphill. Uh, we actually ran into a... Um, a barrier of, of um, booby traps. Booby, really? Yes. Almost like it was a, uh, well, almost like it was their equivalent of a Gabriel demonstration. I saw so many different types of booby traps uh, in a short uh, area. And it was only 25, maybe 50 yards deep at best. Really? Was yeah. there any, that include the punchy pits? Yep. Oh, there was some deadfalls. Yeah. Uh, there was uh, some other... Uh, booby traps that uh, I would say they they were the equivalent of bouncing Betty's. I mean, you could see that they were, if you sat on them, you were going to set wow. off. An and explosion. a bouncing Betty is an explosive that launches in the air, and then it explodes. Yeah, about three feet. For more lethality. Takes out you from the waist down. Thank you. <sighs> yeah. So we made it through there, and we actually did, we did not know that at that time, we started to parallel a... Um, a running path is we took a uh, break to do a combo check to get a hold of um, well the code name at that point for us was Alexander which was the AWACS fly, flying over us okay yeah so we we're try- trying to make contact with them when a small team of NVA walked down the path that we were parallel to really yeah and uh, again that was one of the clarity moments of you're, I'm running the radio, and I'm whispering to Alexander, trying to make first contact with him. Yeah. And he says, you got to speak up. you got to speak up. Sounds like you're whispering. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, yeah. you know, no, I'm sorry. Speak up. Uh, yeah. I can't right now. Yeah, not, not right this minute. Oh. Uh, so they continued back towards, uh, they were actually running down, apparently, to the LZ that we landed on. I mean, that's the direction they were traveling while sure. we were going uphill. And this is parallel. Yeah. And they didn't see you at that they time. They did not see us at that time. Uh, we went for another maybe 10, 20 minutes, at mo- maybe 10, 15 minutes, and then took another break, stopped to listen. Uh, that is uh, when one of the indige on the team saw off to our left, off uh, 
a buffer line. And while we were trying to figure out what we were going to, do, how we were going to circumvent this uh, bunker, is when a tr tracker came and shot up our rear guard. Right, and so that was where that's the first combat on that mission, which was um, going back to the book for a second. Walton was sitting at the end of the formation in a thick jungle vegetation, while the tail gunner, with the tail gunner. They were both surprised to hear numerous NVA soldiers moving along the trail. The, that noise got the gunner's attention. He focused on the area to his right. Walton was sitting in front of him, with the remaining four team members spread out in front of the two of them. As the tail gunner continued to concentrate on the woods to the right, Walton looked past him and saw the bushes shake about 10 feet away. One of the NVA soldiers was crawling up their back trail. As Walton swung his car 15 toward the enemy soldier, the NVA popped up, AK-47 tucked under his arm. He had a big Cheshire cat grin on his face, knowing that he had ST Louisiana dead to rights. The grinning soldier opened fire on full automatic, while Walton was still turning. Four of the NVA rounds struck the tail gunner, wounding him severely. Walton's car 15 rounds hit the NVA soldier and drove his body backwards into the jungle. With the threat temporarily at bay, he began to patch up the tail gunner. Walton dragged him six feet up the hill towards Boggs, got him stabilized, and started an IV, an intravenous drip of blood expander. Walton asked Boggs for permission to crawl back to the dead NVA to search for documents and anything of intelligence value. Boggs rightfully declined the offer. Moments later, the first NVA wave attack slammed into Louisiana. The six-man team repulsed it without taking any further casualties. Did you, you heard the gunfire exchange. Correct. And was the vegetation thick enough that you couldn't see what was going on until John dragged the comrade back to you, that That's perimeter correct. where he was? You couldn't see exactly what was happening I mean, is at that, that point. Twilight Zone stuff or what? Yes. Yeah. And he grabbed him and pulled him in. And then we moved a little bit when he got him inside our perimeter. Yeah. And that's when we got started to be heavily engaged. And, and so what was that wave attack like? Well, the first time, uh, that's a hard thing to say. Because uh, you didn't have a chance to put claymores or anything no, out. They no, just we, we just had our, our rifles, our yeah. car 15s. Trusty uh, car 15s. Yeah. <laughs> they worked. Um uh, <laughs> And part of it was they weren't exactly sure where we were, so I don't think they brought their whole force to bear on us the first uh, first couple of times. Right. So we had the advantage of, of having limited numbers coming at us. So uh, again, the jungle is thick. You're in double canopy or triple canopy at that no, point. No, we no, we thick. moved we moved out of that canopy. Okay. The, uh, the initial contact started in the jungle. Right. And then we. Uh, dragged everybody out to a clearing and called uh, for medevac. Right. And that's when we got, started to get hit again. 
And so when, when that first hit, was there like literally a wave of soldiers, enemy soldiers coming out, or like sporadic it guys? It was sporadic guys coming out. But still, it's like, welcome to the jungle, yes. baby. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we were very. It was not a coordinated attack on our position because they, right. they weren't sure exactly where we were. Sure. And when we moved, we lost. They lost track of where we were. So you're able to repulse it. Yes. And John took care of the of uh, the tail gunner. And so by now you're on the radio. We got a prairie fire emergency. We need a medevac. And Pete is keeping an eye on the situation. Then another wave attack comes. Had you moved at all before in between tacks? Yes. Yeah, we had moved after the first one uh, and uh, trying to get a better position in the in an open field where we could bring in some uh, the medevac helicopter. So uh, we called in. Uh, we got the 101st gunships over us relatively quickly. Right. Okay. And they were able to make gun runs. It took some of the pressure off. It took a great deal of uh, pressure off because at that particular point, the NVA were more concentrated on trying to shoot down the helicopters than they were on us. Right. And there was an across the valley, or or, uh, not from behind us, but from in front of where we were going. Uh, They had put an NVA unit online. And so every time the chopper came down the ridgeline, to make a gun pass, you could hear this whole ridgeline open up on the on the wow, guns. No kidding. And every time they did that, the ridgeline was closer. <laughs> and that firing line, uh, and you just hear the progress of that coming down the uh, the towards slope you. Co- towards us. Yes, we yeah. knew what was coming. Yeah, um, and that was also part of that theory about getting close to the belt. Yes, the enemy gets close to your belt to avoid getting hit by air assets. Yes, that uh, attack air. It avoids our, or ne- try, they try to neutralize our air superiority by coming in and kissing you hello right. and staying as close to you as they possibly can. So, again, we had a little section in the book here about you and those opening moments where after they arrived, um, every time they flew by for the gun run, the NVA and the Ridgeline would jump up and fire. Cunningham crawled to a knoll to get a better view because it was his first contact with the NVA. The dirt in front of his face exploded several times from enemy rounds. Cunningham suddenly thought maybe that wasn't such a good idea as he backed up real fast. After a few more close gun runs, the helicopters had expended all of their ordnance and returned to base of operations at Fubai. Cunningham jokingly asked the 101st gunners if they could come, just come on down and pull them out. The gunships declined, saying the extraction helicopters were on the way. A few minutes later, Cunningham was told the A-1 Sky Raiders were on station. Boggs had asked for a napalm run. Walton was sitting next to Cunningham on his right and had just finished patching up the last of the tail gunner's wounds. Both men were near a clearing. Boggs directed the napalm run, which struck the ground at the far end of the open area and moved towards ST Louisiana on the knoll. Walton didn't think about anything about it. Off in the distance, he could see the spad making its run, saw the canister come loose from the aircraft and tumbled down towards earth. After the napalm canister hit the ground and exploded, its forward momentum carried 
a one-foot hunk of burning metal up the knoll, over the open area, towards Walton. And I guess you, we're sitting there together. Yes. You're watching all this, too. Correct. And his team. It stopped right between Walton's feet. He sat there staring at it, the burning metal between his legs for a few seconds. Cunningham was amazed at how close it was. I mean, my God. And he got splashed on the on his arm with it. I can remember Walton knocking off the napalm off his off no. his off his sleeve. <laughs> yeah. And because napalm, if you don't knock it off, it it'll burn until it burns itself out. So you have to smuggle it with uh, smother it with something mud. Yep, or something. Otherwise, it's going to continue to burn, yep. and it has burned through people's limbs. Yes. No, oh. he was. I won't say casual about it, but he was just brushed it <laughs> off his sleeve. Uh, that's what you call about danger close air support. Oh it God. is dangerous and it is close. Very close. And you yep. watched all this. Yep. Oh. <laughs> Any, I just can't imagine. We've done napalm, but I've never ever had anything that close with a, with that from the napalm explosion. I just can't imagine. It's hard, it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's hard to put into words. You, but it's, you're experiencing it. I mean, you're, it's just part of what, you're dealing with at that present moment. Oh, my God. Uh, you don't have time to think about the real impact of what is going on. Oh, sure. Yeah. So you all watch that. You're trying to survive it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and besides, the the NV are coming further down the knoll each time there's a gun run. Yes. Closer to you all. Yep. And this is highly visible. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, they, they were, there wasn't a lot of distance between us and them physically di- distance. Right. Uh, they had uh, overrun us a couple of times at that particular point. Oh, God. And we had beaten them back with small arms fire. That's why we brought in the spads uh, right. uh, as close as we did. So then uh, it was at that point, at some point, uh, John went back to, to, to Boggs, and uh, the I think Pete directed him to go back to the tail gunner's position. Because that point of your that at that point, that part of your perimeter, nobody was there. That's correct. So, John moved back to the other side of the perimeter, and you he had crawled about eight feet down a slight slope when a second NVA wave hit the team from Bog's side near the point. Again, ST Louisiana held as another wave of NVA moved towards the team. Bog began to yell to his men that they were being overrun. From his position, only eight feet away, Walton couldn't see Boggs or Cunningham or the Vietnamese team member who had filled the slot that he, John, had vacated. The jungle vegetation was so thick, he could only see one or two feet around him. In fact, the foliage was so thick, Walton would see the leaves move first to announce an incoming enemy soldier. Good yeah. God. That was one of my first experiences in getting overrun was you could see the, the, leaves, the leaves move. move. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. something. A lot of times the firefights, because you're in the jungle, the leave movement or the AK rounds coming out of those leaves. Yeah. And you could see the uh, the gas uh, from the uh, expulsion of the gas from the firearms pushing the leaves aside. So you can watch them vibrate. As they're firing, you watch the leaves move with oh, the sure. rhythm of the fire. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so then, going on, so 
John is only eight feet away, but he can't see y'all. That's right. just, again, another indication of what the jungle you, you're in. But you can, from where you and Pete and the remaining uh, team members can see. And then did Pete announce that, that they're going to call a gun run? at some point on the team because there's another wave attack on you all? Uh, at that particular point, we, uh, I mean, before we got that far, uh, one of the indig had the uh, M79, was an M79 gunner, and he had expended all of his M79 ammo. Really? Yeah. So he was working the signal panel to try to mark the team location for the spads. Right. So he was behind behind me. Um and uh, after the napalm run, Pete decided that we were going to try to blow a hole through their uh, line and E and E through that hole. So we were going to dump our rucks, and at the conclusion of the, of the uh, gun run, run. And so, and then use the airstrike to blow a hole in their ranks, so you could E and E escape and evade through that hole. That's correct. Whoa. <laughs> so by that point, you were taking, but you still had the rucksack on. Yes, I still had the radio on. So we were not going to dump ruck, and I don't think we were going to leave. I had no intention of leaving the radio. I mean, oh, yeah. So um, and we were going to just run for it at that particular point. The air assets, our uh, UH-34s had not arrived. We didn't know when they were coming. Uh, and uh, we were going to do our best to get out of that. And so again, it's just like this moment in time. He did Pete say <clears throat> we're calling a gun run or give you guys any kind of a yes. heads up? Yes. Well, I I don't know how much uh, John knew. Right. But Pete turned to me and said, "We're what we were going to do. He's going to call in the gun run danger close. Yeah. Uh, do an H E drop, and we would uh, try to evade from that point. Wow. So be ready. Yeah. You know." And so this at that point, Boggs called in the airstrike and told the Spads to hit ST Louisiana, to hit his team, mm-hmm. to break the next charge. The first 20 Mike Mike gun run ripped into the NVA and through ST Louisiana's perimeter. Cunningham was in a world of shit, and there was nothing he could do about it. The next thing he knew, he was 100 yards away watching himself get hit twice. I'm sorry, it's yeah. a little bit redundant, but that moment in time is just so amazing. Um, so there you are. You're 100 yards away. We're back at that moment in your life. And I'm outside the perimeter. Yeah. And I don't know whether I'm alive or dead. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, like it's fortunately, I think fortunately for everybody, we didn't know whether we were going to get out, obviously, whether we were going to get out or not. Sure. At, at that particular point. And... I knew, and it is redundant to say, I knew that if I was alive, I had to be not a drag on the team, but I had to be a help to the team. Oh, yeah. yeah so uh, I was motivated by, if, if the only way we're going to get out is if I can contribute to getting out. Yeah. Staying and alive. So, like, and, and, and here you are, severely wounded, but you're still, like, you still have the soldier's attitude, what's best for the team. Yeah. And you did it. And uh, I remember talking... At that to, point, you were not thinking about yourself. You're thinking yeah. about the... the cohesive unit you know can, even though your leg your your right leg lowered right leg is dangling from yeah. sinew and you got shrapnel on your back from the uh 
20 mic mic round, tearing up your PRC 25. You're doing what's best for the team. And so just as a little sidebar, at that time, I remember that day personally because we were at Fubai back at the base camp, mm-hmm. safely ensconced, but we had heard that the team was in a world of shit. And back at FOB1, most of the Spike team members were either huddled around their PC, PRC-25s, listening to Covey, talking to ST, Louisiana members, or in the comm center where they monitor more frequencies. And when the first reports rolled in from Covey about ST, Louisiana situation, the team sounded doomed. And in the Ashaw Valley, the airstrikes gave ST Louisiana a brief lull in the fighting, enabling Walton and the one remaining unwounded Vietnamese team member to move the wounded closer to the clearing. Pat Watkins, who was the cubby rider at that time, told Walton that he was going to direct a series of strafing runs by Air Force F-4 Phantom Jets and that the first King Bee would land to pick up the most seriously wounded, and that a second and a third H-34 would extract the remainder of the team. Walton and the Vietnamese team member moved the tail gunner out from the tree line into the grassy area while Boggs assisted Cunningham. As soon as the NVA heard the King Bee, the enemy activity picked up again. The wounded were moved out to the open area where the grass was only six inches tall. There were constant dirt spurts kicking up all around from enemy gunfire. Captain Tin piloted the first King Bee and landed with the right strut only a few feet from the wounded members. And so getting back to you and your personal experiences, this is another sidebar on what you went through that day. It's kind of like there were only three times Cunningham really felt pain that day. The first time was when he got hit. He said later that his body felt like one of those used, like you said earlier today, the Chinese gongs as the shock rays reverberated through your body. The second time was when Boggs was helping you get back to the landing zone. Your wounded leg got caught on a tree. Yes. Good God. (laughs) So you immediately knew that meant that when they said pain had Keller's, Quote, Cunningham saw a rainbow of Keller. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Getting that leg hung up on uh, a shrub and was, <laughs> um, I, I really had, laugh, in, in, is... in between the two, I had, I really was not in a great deal of pain. Yeah. I'm not going to say I wasn't in shock and I was in and out of things. Uh, but that was the next big wave of, of pain. Oh my God. To this day, it's kind of still vivid in your memory. I'm yes. assuming. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then. Uh, when Boggs assisted you to get on the King Bee, he turned around to fire at the charging NVA. Cunningham didn't want to get shot in the back, so he used his stump to climb aboard the H-34. He crawled to the back of the chopper, thinking he was finally safe. The King Bee lifted off. So that was the third time you got hurt getting in the chopper. Yes, it ripped off, uh, tore off the uh, cauterization that had occurred on the leg. Oh. Uh, and it was, if you talk about lessons learned, yeah. uh, lessons learned was I was not safe in the chopper. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so I crawled to the, what I thought was the back of the chopper, uh, and tried to tend for myself as much as I could. But at that point I was losing, I was bleeding out. I was losing blood. 
Right. Were you able to work on your tourniquet nope. at all? Nope. I was barely able to maintain consciousness. So Captain Tin takes off with you and Pete. Or who? Or no. Or they did, did shot four did, times. Yeah, okay. That's correct. Again, because of the height of the mountains, the heat of the day, the first plan was they knew that the helicopters are going to carry so much weight. Correct. In this case, it was two people. You and the ditch that was shot four times that John had passed up. And John had worked on you, but right. now the bleeding begins again. Yep. And when you took off, did you realize that other helicopters were trying to get in and couldn't? Uh, no. The rest of what happens after that is what everybody else has really told me of what has happened sure. after that. And then at some point, your king bee turns around and goes back. Yes. You, what was you, that like? You, you mean, talk you, about the, you know, <laughs> there's good luck, bad luck, and fortunes of whatever. Uh, but if it had, if the plan had worked as envisioned, I would have bled out before we got any place. Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't be here. Wow. Uh, so with the other king bees not able to come down because the intense fire from the NVA, uh, Captain Ting brought us back down. Yeah. And the rest of the team got on board. And that is when Walton again put on a tourniquet on my leg. So listen, so we just run run through this. A second king bee tried again and it gets shot out. Right. A third king bee tries again, it gets shot out. Captain Tin hears this, circles back, comes in, and picks him up. Because at that point, you know, after the, the first couple of shifts, Walton felt sick. Now he's on the grounds, just him, the indige, and Pete Boggs, who's wounded, Correct. seriously wounded. And the one other indige team member who's not wounded and still a, just a fearless warrior. Yeah, we had one indige get out without a scratch. Yeah. Which I understand if, again, he had been, he saved our butt. So, oh, yeah. I mean, for lack of better characterization. Indeed. Uh, he was the only one who was really uninjured and totally mobile uh, on this at that particular point. Oh, my God. He and John. And so, John, the question of the weight had forced the team to leave the dead Vietnamese team member behind. His added weight might hinder the chances of the living team members to successfully be exfiltrated. So Walton and his counterpart scanned the sky for the helicopter, but none were in sight. Then he heard on the radio, King B go down. Captain Tin King. said this in the radio as he re came down and landed right next to where John was. And at that point in time, the enemy were closing in on John, the indige, and Pete. Correct. And so... Um, they get aboard, and again, we're at that point in time where the king bee can't take off. Are you aware of just how, of all these dynamics? Can you hear the gunfire? I can hear the, the gunfire firing, uh, and I can I know the team is coming on board. Right. I didn't know that you know the plan had been to take me away <laughs> and not come back and pick up the team. Uh, so uh, no, I was very much aware that we had come back down and uh, picked up the remaining part of the team. Uh, are the flight out i'm not aware of okay because uh, after walton puts on uh the tourniquet i think i go into i don't have a good memory so i expect sure. at that particular point well, at I, that I point, went into shock in, you're in and out of shock yep and like you said you're losing blood fortunately like you said as it turns out for you john gets on the helicopter while captain Tin's trying to take off he's working on your leg yep and working on saving your life and Again, we're back to the whole weight heat issue, and uh, the H-34 has struts on the side with wheels. Correct. And so um, 
Captain Tin realized that the weight he couldn't lift off. So he lifted the back wheel of the helicopter off the ground and started rolling downhill, gaining as much airspeed as possible, while the NVA fired at the chopper. At the last possible moment, Tin nursed the aging Sikorsky over the trees. Unfortunately, the chopper didn't have enough speed to gain altitude needed to fly out of the mountains. So Captain Tin dipped down into a valley to build up more speed, all while under enemy gunfire. Mm-hmm. And then he took a couple of laps. Do you remember any of that? Or just by now you're heading no. back to Fubai? By 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 that time, I am pretty much unconscious. Uh, so I don't remember any of the particulars of, of that. What I My next conscious memory is... Uh, being stripped of my clothing while I'm in the, in the chopper. Was oh, that right? So, so they're taking off, uh, and I can't tell you who's doing it. Sure. But uh, they're taking off my gear, taking off my clothing. Uh, so by the time we arrive uh, at the hospital, I am, as I was born, thank you very much, <laughs> minus a leg, bare ass and naked to the world. Because uh, <laughs> your fatigues were also pretty well shot up between yep. the rounds and everything else and the bleeding. Yes. And so John, it had to be John and his indige helping to get you out of the clothes, realizing they mm-hmm. had to have you and bare they, surface for they, the hospital. They've, they've got to be checking for wounds, at that, oh. you know, other wounds and stuff like that at that particular point. Um, and then what I remember is when we landed, the medical staff met us at the, you know, came out to the yeah. to the chopper. And I'm being pulled off, and it had to be a doctor who's who, who criticized the uh, placement of the tourniquet. The tourniquet was too high. Yeah, tur- yeah, too high. <laughs> yeah, it's surprising what you do remember. Oh my God! Uh, and then the second thing, his comment was the intuitive, obvious. You know, you've lost your leg, young man. No. Yes. <laughs> and I said, okay. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, yeah. but this is no <laughs> bedside manner. It's not. Yes. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, see here when. Uh, uh, so you're being attended to bare ass naked mm-hmm. by a doctor and Walton and the uninjured Vietnamese team member carried the wounded Vietnamese team member into the army medical facility. And someone told Walton that they didn't treat Vietnamese there. Walton told them to treat that Vietnamese or there would be hell to pay. God, do you remember any of that? I remember uh, the aftermath of that because uh, as they started getting fluids into me, I became more conscious. Yeah, yeah. And the Vietnamese was two beds over from me <sighs> uh, at that particular point. And the, again, you know, you and I are are big fans of John Walton yes. for being a, the the epitome of a good Green Beret medic. And uh, but for John, even though you're beginning to recoup and come back to your senses a little bit with the IV, for John, the drama continued. When he got Cunningham inside, he was barely hanging on due to the loss of blood and trauma. One of the young doctors got nervous. He had never had a dirty, sweaty grunt just out of the field, sticking his nose into his business. (laughs) Oh, my God. So when Cunningham's pressure was so low they couldn't get an IV into him, Walton told the doctor to do a cut down, cut into the vein, expose it, stick a catheter into it, and tie it off with a suture. And John did it. 
because the doctor was too shaky. Yeah, <laughs> it's surprising you're in a combat hospital and the doctor doesn't have that. <laughs> Maybe he was an FNG. I don't yeah, know. no kidding. <laughs> and then the doctor soon realized that medic wasn't leaving. Oh, so um, and there was one other point in there. Any other burning memories from that moment? Was I know at uh, in that while I'm in the while I'm in the hospital in the bed. Yeah, uh, John comes over. Walton comes over and wants to know if I had, did I see how, what Pete did because he was at that point very he impressed me that he had been impressed by what Pete did. Right. Oh, sure. Uh, and how he said, did you see his eyes? You know, and, and the intensity of that. And I had, at that point, no, I didn't. <laughs> You're a little busy. Yeah. You know. <laughs> oh, my God. And then, uh, um, so from your personal experience, from there, they clean you up, patch you up, and then you stayed overnight. Then uh, the uh, rest of the indigenous team came down first uh, just, and came in to see how I was. Right. Um, and we talked for a little bit. Uh, my sense of time here is totally bizarre, you know, oh, whacked. Yeah. Uh, and then they went over and they uh, talked to the other, our other inv- indigenous teammate uh, to see how he was doing. While they were doing that, uh, the rest of the guys from the FOB came down, including uh, Colonel Warren. Uh, wow, he came up from Da Nang. Yeah. So, yeah. So he came in. No kidding. Yeah. I'd forgotten that. And wanted to know what, I, what he could do for me at that particular point. Whoa. And I had an absolutely ridiculous request, which I don't have to repeat here. <laughs> uh, but it had to do with an alcoholic beverage, uh, which would not have helped me at all. Uh, <laughs> but they ended up bringing down a carton of cigarettes for me. Uh, a medic that I didn't know, uh, Gordon Martin, yeah. uh, gave me his lighter for the cigarettes. Um, and I think they brought a six-pack of beer. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the following morning, I left the hospital with the lighter. I don't know where the beer went, don't know where the cigarettes went, but I had the lighter. You kept the lighter. Well, the lighter was in my hand. You still have it to this day? I have it to this day, and if Gordon ever hears this and wants it, it's his. (laughs) I thought, so according to the book here, this could be a little wrong, but uh, didn't they try to slip in a favorite whiskey? Well, I asked. You asked. You tried. I tried. (laughs) Because uh, what I remember was, because we're still relatively new ourselves, so we were several guys that went over with John to go back on Sunday morning to visit you all. Cause I remember, yep. cause I knew Pete, because yep. Pete and I, uh, just from being in camp together, and you were still, had just come in, and Left. all of a sudden, you have this unique moment in time, and thank God you're still alive. You're the, the uh, SOG miracle man. Yes. <laughs> Not too many people get hit with this indeed and live to talk about it and this never is mind the hit with two 20 mike mike round just think about that for a second hit with two. Oh my god the 220 mike mike man either that or a miracle man I, whichever one you like better uh, i care i went out and bought myself a couple of oh, that right? mike mics <laughs> that i think i'm going to add to uh my motorcycle just, just to, <laughs> to remind your collection, me huh Remind me of how lucky I was. Well, yeah, and then uh, and more than luck, it was based on everybody else doing their job 
and doing it well. Oh, yeah. Because if everybody else had not done their job and done it well, again, I wouldn't be here. Because even after Pete's wounded and John's moving him back to the uh, potential LZ for the King Bee to come in, I mean, he's still firing away, yep. fighting. And now uh, the, the guy, the uh, tail gunner who was shot four times, he's just trying to stay alive. But he did. Yep. John saved him and you and, of course, Pete. He had serious shrapnel wounds, but uh, nothing as serious as yours. And there's just one more little sidebar uh, from that day uh, regarding John that I just wanted to get into. Later that night, and again, I'll never forget it because we were at the poker table with John. And uh, after he had showered and shaved, we were playing poker at the Green Beret Lounge at FOB1. Being left-handed, when John dealt a hand of poker, he held the deck in his right hand. As he dealt the cards across the table, someone noticed a flesh wound across his right wrist. Walton was asked what had caused the wound. As Walton puzzled over the crease in his wrist, the poker game came to a temporary halt. Most of the men playing that night were on spike teams or were covey riders and had spent time on the ground. So they knew what RT, ST Louisiana had been through. Finally, Walton said that during the contact with the grinning NBA soldier who shot the ST Louisiana tail gunner, one of the rounds from his AK-47 had creased Walton's wrist as he was turning his body towards the NVA soldier to kill him. Everyone sat there for a second, amazed at how close Walton had come to being shot and just how fortunate he was that the NVA's round hadn't inflicted a more serious wound. Walton just shrugged his shoulders and the game continued. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then when uh, at the at the end of this chapter, when you and I had uh, an interview back in July two thousand and two, and you have mentioned something also, you you can do everything right or wrong, and it doesn't matter. Life's a matter of inches, and so you were talking about during this morning in the Ashaw Valley, you were carrying an extra pouch of hand grenades. Oh yes, oh yes. my God, and on just, my right thigh. Right thigh, okay. Yep. So just as Boggs had instructed him, it hung below the pouches attached to his web gear, down the side of his leg. The 20-millimeter round that severed his leg missed it by only a few inches. Had that round hit the grenades, Pete and I would have been history that day, right there in the Ashall Valley. Yep. My God. I had forgotten that part in the narrative. But yeah. yes, no. <laughs> and he told you to hang the pouch so it's uh, you have it below your all your web gear and everything. Right, so I could reach, right reach down, ready and there go. they were, ready to go. Oh, my God. So from... Um, and another couple of inches on that round. And there's so many times you can sit here and say, but for that, I wouldn't be here. If I didn't have the radio on, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. If I'd got hit just a little bit higher on my leg, I wouldn't be here. Uh, you know, if... Captain Ting hadn't brought the helicopter back down. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know. And again, it was because the other two got shot out. Yeah. And Ting comes back. Yep. Oh, my God. Yeah. So yeah. It, it just proves, to me, it proves the fortunes of war, if you want. The good luck, bad luck, 
uh, all mixed in there together. I can't, you know, just the way it it ended up that we got out. Oh. And, um, oh, because from an observer's perspective, who is like a hundred miles away, safe in FOB one, we all thought the team was done because we could hear the cubby traffic and noted that the team had been overrun. When a recon team gets overrun, usually that's finito. That's the end of the ball game for that team. And in 1968, earlier, we had several teams that were literally overrun, that were wiped out. And we had ST Alaska with John Allen, who got overrun and then had an ongoing firefight, and John was the only one to survive to come back. And then earlier we had ST Asp, other teams, and even as we talked last night, uh, talked about uh, Phil Villarosa, one of the first recon missions out of uh, FOB4 Da Nang in January 1st of 68. And that team got, everybody was killed except one American. And he came back, and the NVA left them live because they wanted to come back to talk about, to tell what the NVA did to the rest of the team. And so you're all part of that, that uh, uh, carnage that was going on. And the casualties of war, because the secret wars, it turns out, had the highest casualty rate in the entire war. It was exceeded 100%. And you're a part of that history, and you're lucky to be here to talk about it today. On, on the brief we got uh, that I received before we got inserted, uh, they gave us a little history of that particular target area. And I was told, my memory is, that we had lost one whole team in there uh, about six months earlier. Wow, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, there are several those targets. The teams have either been wiped out or hit so hard it took them a few months to get back into being operational strength again. And that's part of the reasons we thought we weren't going to actually succeed in inserting was the area was so <laughs> known to be hot. Well, then, and then to follow up, say, yeah, we're going to go in, confirm the enemy's here so they can come in with an arc light. Yes, but <laughs> and don't delay exiting. Yeah, <laughs> you don't want to be on the wrong end of an yeah. arc light. Yeah. You don't want to be on the ground when this happens. Thank oh you very much. Oh, my God. So uh, after August 3rd, on the 4th, you're at the hospital. You get a medevac to Japan. What's, yes, to what Japan. What happens from there? Uh, t- went to, excuse me, went to Japan, uh, Camp Sima, the hospital there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tried to do, they tried to close, my leg had not been, they were unable to close my leg at the field hospital in Vietnam. So they tried again in Japan, and they were not able to do that in Japan. Uh, I had been told going into the surgery that if they couldn't close it, I would, um, they'd put a cast on my leg and ship me back to the United States. They'd put a cast on my residual limb mm-hmm. and send me back uh, to the States. When I woke up from surgery, I found that I could, I could move my fingers. Right. I couldn't move any other part of my body. Ooh. I was in a full body spiker cast from my neck down my good leg and with my residual, with traction built into the cast for my uh, residual limb. A body cast? A body cast. Yeah. Oh my God, what that? <laughs> I, I, I never heard this side of the story. Uh, okay. Well, there's a little, you know. Yeah. There's but the, it's a the aftermath. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm shipped back to the States in a uh, full body spiker cast, body cast. Uh, and we fly from Japan to Alaska. Uh, we stop someplace, and people who know the military bases better than I ever will uh, might know where we stopped. We stopped someplace in the United <laughs> States. 
uh, mid-country. And they took us off the uh, airplane, put us into the ward for an overnight stay. And again, uh, I don't know if I, I don't know what I have told you in the past. So it was so long ago. They they put me in this bed, uh-huh. and I look down, and I've got maggots crawling out of my no out of my cast. <laughs> and I still so I call a medic over, and I says, you know, what's that? <laughs> Because I'm, I, I'm in a drug state. Yeah. I mean, they're keeping me pretty well drugged. Uh, so I wasn't even sure what I was seeing at that particular point. And the, the medic grabs a couple, puts them in a jar, runs off. And by the time he comes back, I know they're maggots. And I know that I, you know, my brain starts working, and that's not, yeah, yeah. that's not a problem. In fact, it's common medical practice to throw maggots into an open wound because maggots will not eat good flesh. They only eat decaying flesh. Well, and we had that operation tailwind with a medic was Mike Rose. Yeah. And they carried wounded personnel. And there's one of the subtitles in that book there about that operation tailwind maggots help SF medic. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's just like, yeah. that's what you're. Uh, and they put it in the cast. So, uh, they put it in the cast. Yeah, okay. They, they yeah. Him, they put them in the cast. And uh, so we Stayed overnight there. Uh, it was not a pleasant uh, night over. There was, um, can, you're going to edit some of this. Maybe. If we have to, yes. Okay. Well, I'm in the cast, and after they found the maggot, maggots, and I'm sitting there going, you know, I've got, I've got to defecate. I've got to yeah. take a shit. We're, we're too busy. We don't have a bedpan. <laughs> Just go no. in the bed. Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you do. Yeah. And I did. Uh, but that was, like I said, it started to get a little rough uh, on, uh, on that. Um, and they, they would rather clean the bed than get a bedpan. Really? Yeah. I don't understand that at neither, all. But... Neither do I. But uh, <laughs> it's not the choice I would have made Indeed. either as the medic or orderly or the patient. <laughs> uh, but when you got to go, trust me, you got to go. Indeed. Uh, so the next morning, we, they fly me from, uh, and I'm not alone. There, there's several other, you know, it's a plane full of wounded guys. Sure. Um, and you're cleaned up and polished a little bit by that point? By that time, I'm, I'm still in the full body spiker cast. So, oh. uh, and uh, I'm spread eagle in the cast, if you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, there's a maybe an uh, inch and a half, two inch slit in the groin right. butt area, and that's it. Uh, and... At that hospital, they're really di- dispensing patients all over the place. So a group of us go uh, to the East Coast. They're it's like trying a triage. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where are we going to send you? Yeah. Uh, you don't, Again, you don't have an active say in it. It's just they're looking at uh, your wounds, your, your ability, where are you from. Uh, so they uh, send me to Dix. We land in Dix. Fort Dix, New Jersey. Fort Dix, New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, in route to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. There's an Ar- uh, Army hospital. There was an Army hospital in Valley Forge. Right, yeah. And they put me on this, not really an ambulance, an ambulance bus. Um, I'm the only stretcher case. Everybody else is walking, wounded, uh, able, ambulatory. Yeah. Uh, and this I, this medic comes by. Excuse me while I, because this is, this is another where, where did you feel pain? Okay. <laughs> no. He comes by. I'm on this. I'm, the travel up to that point had been fine. Yeah. 
And he, this guy looks at me and says, you know, your legs cannot exceed the confines of your stretcher. So he takes my two legs, or my one leg and the residual limb in the traction, and he pushes them together. What? Yeah, is. yeah, yeah, okay. So I'm now within <sighs> regs. I'm now in the confines of the stretcher, uh, which did a lot of damage to my, my back had been obviously hurt when I got hit. Right. So, and that's one of the reasons they had put me in the spiker cast is because of my back. Your back. I never even thought about that. So when they compressed my legs together, that put oh. a lot of pressure back on my back. And the ambulance driver decides not, he is unaware that this is happening. He decides that he's going to take the scenic route to Valley Forge General Hospital through Valley Forge Park. And halfway through the park, somebody noticed that I was, you got a piece of white paper here? I was turning white and pale. From uh, the pain. From the pain. They had no medic on board. But they had, you had no color this time, no rainbow, just no, pure that, pain. No, this was just pure pain oh. uh, and discomfort. And I was obviously getting into physical distress. Not, I'm not, I don't think dangerous areas, just yeah. really distressful areas. And they got me to Valley Forge, and this is at... I don't know how many days I'd been in the body cast. Um, so they take me into the hospital, and the first thing they want to do is see my the state of my residual limb, so they're going to cut me out of the body cast. At that, when they did so, my dressings of the wound had become part of me, oh. or I had become part of them. Yeah. Uh, and that was the highest pain level I've ever had. It was like being skinned alive. It was worserer? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes, it was worserer. Yes, it was. You could tell I'm an English major. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you write often and, <laughs> yeah. and speak well. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And they I had to tear and, that stuff off your skin. Yeah, and I passed out from that. Which is... Thankful. Yeah, yes. But it screws up my pain level... Uh, test now when you go to somebody and they say, uh, you know, what's your level of your pain? Ten being the worst you ever had. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you say my ten's very high. Yeah, I've, okay. I've had really high tens yeah, before. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my nine's really high too. Yeah, uh, but it screws off that. And then I spent 16, 16 months in the hospital in Valley Forge. No kidding. Yeah, eight, eight plus every other every. Three to four weeks, I was having a major operation. Really? Yep. That many operations? Yep. yep. And what would the... So at that point, you're just trying to get everything reconstructed? It, so at some uh, point, the, you could have a prosthesis? The first couple of operations were just trying to close the wound. Right. Uh, and then I had to have skin grafts uh, because they couldn't... Uh, through the traction, they tried to stretch the skin. Uh, they tried to close the wound. I still had open areas on the wound, so I had to go through uh, skin grafts, which was a relatively minor operation. But right, uh, they take your skin from a part yeah, of your they body. They take skin from my uh, left thigh uh-huh. and transport it over to my residual limb. <laughs> and then they're doing uh, what they call uh, revisions of the residual limb, trying to get it to a reasonable shape. Sure. Then uh, the last surgery I had, uh, they were going to tie the 
they had a new procedure that they were experimenting with on tying the ends of the muscle into the end of the residual bone. Okay. Before they just overlap them over the uh, bone. Right. They were going to actually tie it in to the bone. And they thought that gave a better shape and a longer um, useful life of the residual limb. Right. But the... And talking about dumb stuff, okay? Bad luck. Okay, they prep me. They get me down to the surgery room. I go on an anesthesia, and the doctor, there's only one doctor who can perform this specialized surgery, and he's not available. So they just do a normal, small revision. No. Yeah. After all that? After all that. And uh, then the major doctor on, the, there was Major Lanou, who was the doctor of the ward, uh, after that surgery, you know, they apologized. We didn't do what we wanted to do. But at that point, I'd been there 14, 15 months. Oh, my God. And I said, you would benefit from having this surgery, but it's not critical. And it's probably more important for you to leave, you know, to, right. get, out, to get out of the hospital and get on with life. We got to get out of this place. place. Yep. Yeah. And so I left. After how many surgeries, Tom? I lost count, but I was roughly eight. Oh. Uh, yeah. You know, little things you remember coming out of surgery, the nurse that you've been trying to impress Indeed. Com- comes over and says, how are you doing? And you throw up on her. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we, we go through this whole class act here. <laughs> uh, oh, no. After one of the surgeries. And, and it takes a while for your body to know that you, for the rest of your body to know that you've lost your limb. Because uh, so you, you could feel. I so remember you can, once you yeah. told me. I thought you said you could still feel, or you thought you were feeling your toes and your. I could. You could get and down and, and you can uh, feel your uh, arch your uh, your foot. Yeah. Uh, you, so you can bend that, uh, and that you slowly lose some of that. Uh, your foot in abstentia. Yeah. So it's not phantom pain. No. Because it was not. It's uncomfortable, but it's not painful, because you. You know it's not, there's nothing there. And a guy, a uh, doctor will come by and say, well, show me if you can bend your knee. And you say, well, and then they'll watch the muscles on your uh, residual limb if you can work Twitch. those. Yeah. Oh. But again, it's uncomfortable, but it's not painful. Uh, but one of the, after one of the surgeries, I, I won't say I forgot I lost my leg, but okay, you get out of bed and you try to take a step. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Only there's nothing to. What's missing here? Yeah, something is missing, <laughs> but not the floor. Hello. Are oh, you able to do a PLF at least? <laughs> no, I just a flat forward fall. Oh, Thank oh, you no. very much. You look, you feel ridiculous. You, oh. uh, and uh, so your body is constantly learning how to adjust with these traumatic injuries. Yeah, I can't uh, imagine. Constantly, but from um, the hospital, I. Uh, Got placed on TDRL, Temporary Disability Retired List, mm-hmm. um, and uh, enrolled it back at Northeastern University to finish my uh, undergraduate degree. And while I was there, I met, uh, there was a uh, SF captain with the ROTC program, uh, Dick Smooch, who was running a counter-guerrilla program. Really? And I approached him and said, you know, can I do anything can I help? Yeah. So I became a uh, unofficial advisor to the ROTC program at oh, Northeastern no University for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And partly because of that, there's a couple of officers that uh, went to SF and completed their whole career in SF. No kidding. Yep. You still stay in touch with them? Still stay in touch with them, yep. Oh, how cool is that? Yep. So then, after you get your degree, somewhere you meet this lovely lady, and... Uh, oh, I met uh, the woman I married. Indeed. Uh, I met her the first year I got back at Northeastern University. Really? Yeah, and... Uh, she was finishing her last year uh-huh. as I was restarting. So we had one year of a terrific romance. Yeah. And then she goes home. <laughs> to where? Rome, New York. Ooh. Uh, and uh, we were not able to successfully maintain a long-distance relationship at that particular time. Right. And the details of all that doesn't really matter, but we were not. Yes, uh, indeed. So I graduate, uh, mess around for a couple of years. Does that include Soldier of Fortune time? Well, we'll get there. We're coming up to that. <laughs> uh, and I decide, uh, 73, 74 area, uh, that I would like to learn how to fly an airplane if I could. So I enroll in an uh, aviation school out in Denver, Colorado, and go out to Denver uh, and fly for a year. Uh, got 500-plus uh, hours, single-engine land, got my license, Thought maybe I'd go for my commercial license, but I suffer from one of the after effects of this whole story is I get concussion headaches, which are like migraine headaches. So turbulence really triggers those off. Ooh. And I found that while I could manipulate all the controls with my, art, I mean, that was one of the yeah, interesting sure. things of can you actually use an artificial leg to fly an airplane? And you yeah. can, you absolutely can. And can you use one when you're above the knee amputee, which is different than... When you had a British aviator had lost a leg or two and continued to yeah. fly. If you've got your knee, there's a lot of things you can do. If you don't have your knee, <laughs> eh, it gets a little bit more challenging. A little more challenging, okay. And uh, one of oh. the flight instructors I had just as, again, small antidotes, he had a box of matches. Yeah. And he broke off the heads of them. And if I wasn't flying correctly, he'd shake them and say, I've got termites in here, you know, uh, and learn... <laughs> But after a year of, of <clears throat> flying, I, I realized that commercial flying commercially yeah. was not going to work for me. Um, I couldn't see myself as a bus driver in the air, right? Uh, which is what a lot of commercial flying is, go up oh, and sure. drive a bus for whatever. Uh, so I went back to New England, back to New Hampshire, and decided I, that's when I wrote Bob Brown, who was on in Boulder, Colorado, and we became... Who at the time was editor and publisher, and today uh, is still the editor yeah. and publisher of Soldier, Soldier of Fortune, Fortune magazine. magazine. Uh, and that was when he was just starting the magazine. Uh, and I don't know where I got it. I can't remember where I got his information. But, right. Uh, but we became uh, friends through mail, and I decided, not because of that friendship, but for other reasons, to go to the University of Colorado in Boulder and work on my master's degree in telecommunications engineering management. Uh, okay. So I go out to Boulder, and that's where Bob lives. To this, this day. Bo- to this day in, in <laughs> Boulder. Uh, and we stay in touch, and he says, you know, one time you want to come down for, join us for dinner. And I join him for dinner, and I won't say the rest of that relationship is history, but for the next, from 1975 approximately through 1981, uh I worked with uh, Bob, or for Bob, depending upon one's point of view, <laughs> um, 
sometimes I can get paid. It's more for, with <laughs> than for. Uh, but during that relationship with Bob, uh, I went to Africa for three times. Uh, really? Spent, uh, yeah, uh, th- three different years. Uh, one of the years I went and traveled with uh, Jim Bolin. Sure. From SOG. Yes. Uh, and uh, He ran out of CCSS. S- CCS. Yeah. yeah. He came up, wanted to go, so we went uh, together with a retired Air Force officer by the name of Dana Dronkowski. Uh, and on that trip, they had um, the International Pistol Competition shoot was being held in Rhodesia. Really? So we went and covered that. I got invited to shoot at that uh, shoot, not as a contestant, but to shoot some of the stages. Sure. And, and that was the first time I met Jeff Cooper, uh, who had the Ameri- the who was there with the American team uh, shooting. I uh, met Ian Smith, the Prime Minister of Rhodesia. Wow. Uh, during one of the trips, met uh, Robin Moore, uh, the author of the Green Berets Indeed. Uh, book. He was running a the unofficial embassy of the United States in Rhodesia <laughs> called the Crippled Eagles, uh, mm. and which was a watering hole for uh, ex-parts and, and other Americans, sure. and other nationals, foreign <clears throat> nationals that were in Rhodesia at that particular time. And I don't know if you know Vernon Gillespie? No, only by name. Yeah, by, again, SF legend. Uh, he helped put down the Mountain Yard Rebellion. Right. Uh, he was working with uh, Robin Moore in South Africa at that time. Wow. Uh, so I uh, wrote a couple of uh, articles for Bob uh, and met some very good people. Al, uh, Al Venture is uh, one of the uh, people that Bob was associated with in Southern Africa. He writes very good books on uh, South African history. So I traveled to both uh, Southern Africa, South Africa, the Republic of South Africa, Rhodesia, Walked in because I had to walk in to Mos- to Mozambique. No, hey, if you're there and you're on the border, and Mozambique is right over there, and there's a little stream between the two. I've been there. I've been there. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so did that. I spent uh, through through that. I met. Uh, I'm blanking here for a second. Went up to Mon Botswana. Uh, and spent uh, with uh, Harry Selby. Harry Selby was uh, a very uh, white hunter out of uh, Kenya during the Mau Mau Revolution and uh, lost his uh, license in Kenya after the revolution. Uh, He wrote the book. uh, He is the fictional character in uh, the book, uh, Rock's book, um, Something of Value. Is built around his character okay. and his successes right. in, in Rhodesia, excuse me, in Kenya against the Mau Mau Revolution. But he was running a hunting preserve uh, on the edge of uh, the Okobanko Swamp. So I got to spend New Year's and Christmas with he and his family, 50 miles inside the swamp. Oh. And he was tagging, uh, and I'm sorry for those who I do not know the difference between an alligator and a crocodile, but uh, <laughs> so we were, he was. He was shifting out of hunting uh, safaris into photographic safaris and game preserve uh, wow. uh, efforts. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I did for Bob. For And through Bob, I worked with, um, he had a, 
Parachute Medical Rescue Service uh, that he tried to stand up. Right. Uh, so I was a director of that for a while, one of several directors. And he also uh, was running a organization called Refugee Relief International. And another SF guy, medic by the name of Tom Reisinger, was ahead of that with Doc Peters. I know. Right. That. Okay. So I went to El Salvador twice with those no pro- with those projects. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to think of. Oh, and he had a uh, marketing uh, branch, Phoenix Associates. So I did, <laughs> I did that for uh, selling catalogs for a buck a piece. Thank you very much. Oh my You'd be God. surprised how much money comes in on a buck a piece catalog. Uh, Back in the 80s now? Yeah. This, yeah. No, we're still in the 70s. 70s, okay. 70s. Uh, the trips to uh, El Salvador with uh, the Refugee Relief International tripped over into um, the 80s, the early 80s. Right. Um, but in 1980, I went to law school at Franklin Pierce Law Center in Concord, uh, which is now University of New Hampshire School of Law. They got absorbed. And I went there to concentrate in law science uh, technology interface. And in between all of this, I remet the lady that I met at Northeastern <laughs> University, and we ended up getting married. <laughs> And Indeed. had two children. And two children. And dumb me, our first wedding anniversary I spent in El Salvador. Oh. Because I didn't even didn't even look at the calendar. Oh, no. Bob called up and said, like to go. We're running a relief. We're going to send down some medical supplies and other things. Would you like to come? And I said, sure. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Mistake. Well, you know, it worked out well, but it was a mistake for that early in you our You learned she was a forgiving, sweetheart. caring loving woman indeed did no sarcasm there at all she was yeah, be- a whole lot better person than i was uh, uh, but we had two children uh, she had one from her first marriage and who i adopted and a son from our marriage and unfortunately my wife passed away 1994 was it 94 94 44 years old <sighs> uh, and my legal career uh, Frank's at Franklin Pierce Law Center. Uh, again, we'll go into a little bit of, uh, yeah, you like the trauma of, you're a Vietnam vet, you apply to a law school that has a very active National Lawyers Guild uh, organization on campus, which is right. extremely uh, more to the left of center. Sure. And we had, uh, Frank's had a participatory uh, admission, student participatory admission uh, panel. So when I got accepted at Frank's, I went for an oral interview over one of the holidays, one of the school holidays, I forget what it was, and they offered, they accepted my application, they uh, approved it. And the National Lawyers Guild members on campus became upset that they had not been able to participate in this. In the vetting, so they could in the vetting. knock you out of the box. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and they were very concerned about my military activities, having been SF, and then having a relationship with Bob Brown in those activities, right. as to whether I would fit into their unique student body. <laughs> so we, I had to do a second interview, and uh, that was obviously successful. You had to convince them you weren't a baby killer. Well, yeah, or I think the biggest diffusion of it came from when they were asking me a bunch of 
questions or whatever, and they got down to my activities with SF and being Green Beret, yeah. being SOG, being, uh, and they weren't sure that those would fit. And I, I had my response to them was generally, I don't have a problem with your politics. I don't have a problem with what you've done or what you plan to do. You supposedly say you are liberal, and yet you are saying you have a problem with mine. Oh, good so, argument. So, you know, I can get along with you, and I'm not supposedly the liberal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, no, but, and, and it worked. I, it, as far as it, I handled that interview fine, apparently, because I got in, they unanimously said, okay, uh, and I went uh, through Franks for three years. Oh, one other little... Str- <laughs> Little one, sidebar. one little sidebar on the interview. One of the members of the student uh, panel uh, was a guy by the name of uh, L. Scott Follinsby. Uh, and what I did not know at the time, Scott was a Vietnam veteran. Um, and he asked me, came time to a panel of questions, and he asked me one of the most stupid questions I had ever heard trying to interview for admission to law school. Yeah. Uh, which I don't have to repeat here because, uh, well, he asked me if I knew what a seer pin was. A seer pin? Yeah, I'm here trying to get into law school. and guy, <laughs> You know what a seer pin is? Uh, so I told him I did and what it was uh, and walked away from that the interview with, that was a stupid-ass question. <laughs> And I meet Scott a couple of weeks later after I start school. And he comes up and he says, you know, I was trying to signal to you that you had a friend on the panel. (laughs) And I said, well, Scott, that signal went way over my head. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Scott graduated from law school and uh, eventually uh, worked for the Department of State in the diplomatic security department. Department of Safety and became uh, head of their anti-terrorist organization. Uh, oh, no Everson, kidding. Yeah. Wow. He is also now passed, laying at rest at Arlington. Uh, but that was my int- my introduction into uh, law school. And while I was there, I uh, became involved. I got asked, invited by the president of the university to, of college, of the law school, to um, get a president panel to try to figure out new directions for the school, so he invited me to work on that, which I did. That's a real honor. Yeah, and then there was a uh, separate program being run by uh, a uh, fellow from the uh, Department of State, and they were trying to work the legal aspects of could the United States, especially northern New England and Canada, Quebec, was there going? Could they form a joint economic relationship on power sharing, electrical power sharing? Right. Uh, so we did a whole thought piece on that for this uh, Secretary of State. Uh, on that was a very interesting project, looking at the Bay of Fundy tides and sure. uh, Hydro Quebec and uh, try, seeing whether you, I won't say a, a created economic dependency, but a mutual independent uh, dependency. Yeah. Sure. And one of the ideas was if Quebec came a little bit more economically dependent upon U.S. dollars, then the free Quebec movement might be 
uh, capped down considerably. So that was interesting. Then my third year, I worked as a intern for the uh, New Hampshire Supreme Court for one of the uh, associate no justices. Whoa, that must have been a real honor. That was it. Was, I was and, and insightful too. It was. I was the one of the first two students, uh, one other guy in my class, uh, to be offered to work for the Supreme Court at, wow. in, a, in an interim yeah. position. So we broke the ground there. There's been several others since then. Since but, then. But that was, uh, it's nice to be first. Indeed. Okay, you know, occasionally. And the others had to live up to your high standards that you set being the first. Oh, no, it's real easy. <laughs> real easy to jump over that hurdle. Uh, <laughs> now, now. Now, no problem. And then I uh, interviewed, uh, as I was getting ready to graduate, I interviewed for a job with a high-tech, electronic tech company, because that's what I thought I wanted to do. Yeah. And they will remain anonymous here for this purpose. Uh, I got invited for the interview. I applied, got invited for the interview, went down to their corporate headquarters in Massachusetts, met with this very nice guy. Uh, But one of his initial questions to me was, did I have any idea of the size of the law department for that company? And we're in a high-rise building. And I said, no, honestly, I did not. Uh, maybe I should have, but I didn't. And he said, well, we occupy two floors of this whole building. And I said, okay. And he says, the next question is, do you know how many of our lawyers are Vietnam veterans? Ooh. And I, again, said, no. And he said, there is one. No kidding. There is one. And I had, had at that point, I was talking, I was told I was talking to him. And he very bluntly explained that the company did not generally hire Vietnam veterans. Uh, we know how they are. So, yep, again, know how that is. This is 1983, though. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Things were still. I thought some time had passed here. Some residual. This, uh, you know. Yes. Was was not a big issue. Uh, so that did not develop into a job offer. And as many careers go, you go where the job offers take you. So from there, I went into criminal prosecution because that's where the job op- the sure. job offer I got. So I worked for the uh, police department uh, in southern New Hampshire for two years. Again, I, and I, I'll tell this just because they are, um, I guess it's somewhat important to understand that we sometimes are really strange people. So I get, I get an interview with the selectman for the town. Three persons select people, and, and, the, and, and the chief was with me. And who's the select people? Because this is a different language than what we hear in other cities. Like councilmen? Council members. Okay, okay. yeah. Um, they run the town. Yes. They make the hiring and firing decisions. <laughs> and so I'm going through this oral interview. The chief is there sponsoring me, uh, and they're trying to reorganize the police department for, uh, they've had a real, at that point, they'd had a big problem with uh, corruption. And they'd had to remove several police officers. Wow. Uh, and so they were trying to upgrade the professionalism of the department. They hired a new chief. They wanted to hire a professional prosecutor. So at some point in this interview, one of the uh, councilmen, selectmen, asked me, you know, not, you are disabled, right? And I said, yes. That means you're getting compensation from the government, right? I said, yes. Well, how much are you getting? No. <laughs> Whereupon I, 
my draw just dropped like yours. Yeah, yeah, I said, yeah. that's not a question I really anticipate. But before I could even formulate an answer, one of the other selectmen goes, that's none of your business. <laughs> and the, so I'm sitting there in this interview with the two, two of the three selectmen arguing with each other as to uh, the basis of my compensation rather should be reduced because I was getting a disability. Getting, oh, my God. We got through that. Yes. They hired me. Uh, and so I worked as a district court, a lower court uh, prosecutor, prosecuting um, violations and misdemeanors for two years for the police department and conducting in-house professional training for the law enforcement uh, officers. Upgrading their standards along the way. Trying to. Yeah. Um, and uh, from there, I went to the Rockingham County Attorney's Office. I got hired as assistant county attorney, um, which would be like district attorneys elsewhere. Yeah, sure. Uh, where we prosecuted felony cases, every every felony up to murder. The murders are done by the uh, AG's office, Attorney General's office right. for the state of New Hampshire. Uh, and I, again, after I got hired, uh, the county attorney, after I'd been there about nine months, sitting down, we'd become friends. He says, I got to tell you, Tom, you know, we weren't sure we were going to hire you. And I said, why? Because of your SF background. We were not. What? We're, we weren't sure that you could fit into our unique community. <laughs> yes. Uh, that you would be flexible enough uh, to be able to uh, work the prosecutional side. But you proved that you're the epitome of flexibility. Oh, I am so flexible. <laughs> it is unreal. Uh, but that's, you know. You, yeah. Uh, the stereotypic Vietnam vet thinking. Yes. Without realizing that, what SF and, is. And, and that per persisted. And now we're talking uh, 86, 87. You, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, of course. You, you, it was there. You're saying, you know, sometimes you think those issues are behind you when they are still there in, in your face. And you just don't know it. People are making those decisions. Oh, yeah. Uh, and you've got no idea why they're making uh, the basis of those decisions. Sure. Um, but I had a very good uh, experience in the Rockingham County Attorney's Office, uh, enough so that the county attorney sent me down to, uh, there's a prosecutional school in Houston, Texas. He sent me down there four times. Uh, wow. To uh, get specialized training in different Sharpen aspects. your tools, yeah. your prosecutorial yes. tools. Yep. Learned a lot. Yeah. And then I moved to the Department of Safety for the state of New Hampshire. They uh, have administrative hearings. Uh, where they adjudicate, or, or you, it's a civil trial or an administrative trial, uh, if somebody has violated the various rules of the Department of Safety, uh, whether it be motor vehicle licensing or hazmat transportation. Uh, so it's a quasi-judicial role that I filled. Uh, in another system, it would be in a, a uh, administrative law judge position. Right. Sure. The state of New Hampshire doesn't have that. Uh, well, everything's a little different in New Hampshire. Well, everything, yeah, live free or die state. Indeed. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> no, but the bench, the judicial bench is very uh, guarded of their authority. Sure. So every time in New Hampshire where this has come up as an issue and say we want to convert these administrative hearings to administrative law judges' hearings, the judicial branch says no, basically. We have judges, and you're not. Uh and that's true, but I did uh, everything that a judge does on an administrative level. Sure. Uh, so you're the uh, adjudicator. You try. You're the 
judge who presides. You're the judge and jury. Yeah. All wrapped up in one. You make conclusions to law, uh, findings of facts, and then you impose sanctions and consequences. And then you're also, uh, they expand the position where you're the official uh, record keeper for the department. So you go to court as a state witness uh, when the records of the department are (laughs) being challenged. Yeah. Um, And I did that for 24 24, 25 years. Wow. So, and retired. Thank Indeed. When did you retire? That's a good question. <laughs> oh, you're don't not ask sure? Me, don't ask me that. No. Uh, because I won't ask it. The question's not asked, Tom. No, don't ask that again. Asked okay. and answered. Thank you very much. <laughs> indeed. indeed. Uh, uh, no, uh, I'm trying well, to we, think. I've been retired for a, for a good while now. For a good while. Indeed. Uh, Was that back when you became the executive director for the Special Operations Association? After I retired, indeed, and I became the uh, executive director for six years, at least six. Yeah, but again, yeah. just for our listeners who may have never heard of either the Special Operations Association was a veterans group of SOG formed by SOG, and then expanded to include aviators that supported SOG yep. over the years, over the operations across the fence, and they had a board of directors, and during that time. The board had hired executive director, the only salaried position, and in came you. Yes. Helping to bring focus and uh, prove it to the yeah. board. And, and, of course, a lot of times you wound up doing things that some of the presidents or other board members should have done. Yes. But you were kind enough to get it done. That job <laughs> expanded. It had no limits. It had no ne- limits. N- none whatsoever. And never a pay raise. No. Nope. <laughs> no, and that was uh, what we stood up. Uh, the SO Special Operations Association started in 1978. Six. Six. With Jim Butler? Yeah, because Jim Butler uh, contacted me in the 70s. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and asked me to join. Yeah. And so for three years, I was a director of communications for the SOA. Oh, no. Is that its, right? At its very inception. Oh, yes. wow. Yeah. I and, forgot about that part. And then uh, yeah. when I left Colorado and went to law school I decided and got married mm-hmm. I said law school and marriage took president over uh, PR for nothing yeah for <laughs> a lot of things including the SOA so I backed yeah. off from the SOA uh, official obligations and forget when I later reconnected yeah and started going regularly uh, and then got asked to be the executive director and, and that was that. like a year or two because in 2003 was the only year that we attended, you and I attended SOAR together with Tony Harrell and John Wall. Yeah. And um, sadly, we lost John in 05 with a experimental airplane crash. But, and you had uh, Colonel Ting there, too, as well. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, John uh, f- uh, flew up to Fargo, North Dakota. And picked in his up. private jet, picked up Colonel Tin, his wife, and his son, flew him back to the reunion, paid for everything, had a special dinner out with the family, and then flew him back after the reunion just to uh, say thanks. And the first time I met Tony after Nam was at one of our reunions. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And uh, we spent the good part of, for those who do not know, we have a hospitality suite when we have our reunion, (laughs) which has an open bar and Uh, stays open till one or two o'clock in the morning, depending upon your and now ability. And are getting a little bit older. They're yeah. cutting the hours back Cut, to about midnight. Cutting those hours back. <laughs> but uh, ran into Tony there, and we sat down and talked uh, Talked out a lot of things. Sure. Um, and I was surprised how much survivor guilt Tony had at that particular point. Certainly. Uh, 
and because I didn't, I didn't see him coming off the team as having anything to do with me getting injured or right. hurt or blown. I saw those as separate events. Sure. And Tony did not see those as separate events. Yeah, it haunted him. Yeah, and it did. Yeah. But we sat down and over. I don't know how much Maybe liquor. a couple of drinks, yeah. Yeah, one or two drinks. Light ones. Light yes, ones. indeed. A lot of ice, no, you know, water, <laughs> little alcohol. Um, but we talked that out, and I think that was that was good for both of us. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I, I know he it was good for Tony. He talked to me about it. He did. He yeah. really yeah. enjoyed it. And, then, of course, you're part of the team. Yeah. Every year we get together, if we can. Oh. And that is something we need to talk about off the record. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and last but not least, another part of the SOA is the SOA Riders, which has raised funds for the SOA, as well yeah. as working on raising the consciousness of issues for our POW and MIAs. Yes. And that is, uh, we stood that up now, what, about 10 years ago? At least. Well, Larry yeah. Trimble yeah. was the first uh, director of the SOA Riders, then mm-hmm. followed by Tom Carroll. Mm-hmm. And today, your good friend, Marcus Witt. Marcus Witt is has now. picked up the gauntlet yep. and run with it. And every year we do a ride of uh, four to five days duration. At the conclusion of the ride, we do a ceremony honoring uh, and remembering our MIAs. We lay a wreath uh, at an appropriate veteran site and lay a carnation for every one of our MIAs, still unaccounted for. Indeed. And As lay, of today, there's 1,583. They just brought home the remains uh, of an Air Force uh, pilot. But these are still the Americans that are still miss, listed as missing in action in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War, which in all of Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and a couple from China. Yeah. Indeed. So it's and it's it we get to show the SOA. Uh, we get to show the public that the SOA exists. Special operations exist. Right, and now we have the Joint SOA Special Forces Association PLWMA committee that Mike Taylor chairs. Yeah. And Mike was the uh, our last guest for Solidcast number ten, and Mike's been very active and done great work through that committee there. Yeah, for a while we weren't we were sort of treading water on the MIA issue as an organization. That's why we brought in Mike, and uh, Mike has squared that away. He we has. Are, we are quite active now in in that uh, arena. Yeah, and it's safe to say be. that the National League of POW MIA families, the uh, CEO, chairman, and Griffith Mills said that this is the most proactive for that mission of any veterans group in the United States, which is a real feather in the cap of Mike yes, it is. and the members of the committee. And Absolutely. it's very important to our membership. Oh, uh, critical. Extremely reason. important. Yeah, because out today there's still 50 Green Berets that are missing in action from the secret war that were across the fence. And then you throw in 80-plus aviators, and this coming reunion in October that all those missing in action will be commemorated at the reunion in October in Vegas. And did you know how active Bob was in that? Because he was. Oh, very active. He yes. was very, very active. He committed a lot of uh, personnel time, Deep. personal Bob time, yes. and financial resources in trying to. Big bucks, yep. even on a couple of adventures that turned sideways yep. on him. But he tried. Yeah, yep. I just wanted to get that. We had to. Bob Brown's one of our heroes. Yep. We might line him up for a SOG cast yeah. someday. It's, he's done a lot of good work, he I has. will tell you that. He may be very controversial, and he has his own. We all have our own. We do. And he may be the only Green Beret officer who was this thrown out of country twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we'll talk about that more later. Any uh, any closing thoughts, sir, as we wrap this up for today? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we've done, you've picked my brain as much as. It's a hell of a story, Tom. You know. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that interview that led to the story. <laughs> so with that thought. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Well, no, we thank you. Um, we want to thank all the veterans out there, men and women who serve our country today, men like Tom Cunningham who stepped up to serve our country, who fought for the ideals of our country, truly an American hero. To those of you out there on the front lines today, we thank you for fighting for all of our values and for our country. We also thank the police, law enforcement, Border Patrol, all of our military services, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, and yes, the Space Force. And we thank to all those that have given up their lives for our country. And for those who didn't come home today, we say thank you. And we close by saying that we have um, the SOG podcast are available now. They're being posted on Spotify, Apple, and eventually will be on podcast and someday might come out as YouTubes but it's a part of a production program and uh, you can go to my website which is uh, com, and if the podcasts are posted they will be listed there also so again Tom we thank you for coming out today and we want to thank Jocko Productions and Saw Chronicles for, for co-hosting this latest show Sogcast number 11 thank you God bless America Airborne.